We set the tent under a gnarly oak on a small flat spot right next to the trail and looking down on the Kona River. It's humid and the wind is gusty, but we feel pleased to have walked over 10 miles on our first day at the Cape Wrath Trail. None of our gear has made it into the tent yet, just as a man in a red raincoat and backpack walks up. He's a thru-hiker on his last day coming from the Cape. We congratulate him and ask for bait on what's to come. Dangerous river crossings, stunning scenery on rough trail that will take longer to walk than we might expect, and a shut section that we can't easily ignore. As we talk, a huge gust comes and flattens the tent. It snaps right back into shape, but that's hardly a good sign. Most people camp near the Bothy, he says, but it's shut. The Bothy? Oh, about 50 meters ahead. Sure enough, a small stone hut sits in a narrow bend in the trail out of sight. From here, it appears ideal, so we decide to simply carry the tent already set up and look for a more sheltered spot near the Bothy. The Big Agnes is as advertised. It's big. A three-person tent I thought a wise choice since it offered enough room to stow wet clothes without getting everything else wet. We each grab a side, blindly waddling down to a burn, then right back up. Ted finds a reasonable sight, but the gusts get more fierce, threatening to pull the tent right out of our grasp. No place is really large enough, and only one provides shelter, but it straddles a ditch and sits on a bit of a wetland. The front door of the Bothy is indeed locked, but a small shed is open on two sides, puddly with garbage strewn about. We can't camp in here or dare even lay inside this shed. So back we go, down over a rushing burn and back up to our first spot. But again, the gusts pick up, grabbing at the tent. We hold tightly, but the wind is far too strong, pulling it like a sail. And we both fall over, partially forced down and partially in hopes of not losing our shelter altogether. It's only a few more steps, but the tent cannot be set in this wild wind. The only thing to do is pack it up and try one more time back at the Bothy. As we close the poles, I see that falling on top of it to keep it from flying away bent the poles. They're not broken and should still work, but it's going to change the shape to a shape that won't protect us from the rain that's just started. You're listening to the Blissful Hiker Podcast. I'm Allison Young, the Blissful Hiker, sometime professional flutist, sometime voice artist, and full-time pedestrian. Thanks so much to Lucky Trekking Poles and Belega Socks for their support. Also, Summit Orthopedics in the Twin Cities, my choice for two total hip replacements. My goal in sharing stories of walking long-distance trails as a solo female middle-aged titanium-reinforced hiker is to empower you to learn to hike your own hike, too. The sun is out this morning, making for an auspicious beginning. We're attempting the Cape Wrath Trail in the western highlands of Scotland. It's probably the toughest trail in the U.K., and taking the walker from Fort William, the end of the more organized West Highland Way, to the northwesternmost point of mainland Britain. 
The rugged trail is utterly unmarked and requires a high degree of navigational skill as well as self-sufficiency, with unbridged river crossings that offer challenge when in spate or flood. The idea to walk in Scotland started with my friend Ted, an Englishman and ultramarathoner that I met on the John Muir Trail, and with whom I've walked all over the world, as well as my one and only ultramarathon, the Felsman, a 62-mile, 11,000-foot gain and loss trailless challenge in the North Yorkshire Moors. In fact, it was that race where I met Ted's friend and arch-rival, Terry, a tall, slender mountain man with a shock of unruly hair. He gave Ted a run for his money, but somehow got lost in the mist that day, ended up behind us, and then dropped out because of the awful weather of spitting rain and ice pellets. Somewhere along the way, Ted convinced Terry to keep running the annual race into his 70s, even when his family wanted him to quit, and he ended up capturing the Felsman over-70 record of 17 hours, which no one, including Ted, has beat. Heartbreakingly, this past year, while walking a tricky ridge in the Scottish Highlands, this seemingly invincible man, a legend and role model for many, managed to trip and fall down, hitting his head and never recovering. At the time of his death, he was climbing one of the highest mountains in Scotland, a Monroe mountain over 3,000 feet, with perhaps the thought in the back of his mind of walking to Cape Wrath with Ted, a feat he actually wasn't sure he could pull off. And that's how I've come to be Ted's second, both of us hoping to walk this desolate but wildly beautiful landscape as not just a challenge to our hardiness, but in memory of a tough fell runner who left the world doing the thing he loved the most. We begin with a huge breakfast of muesli, toast, eggs with orange yolks, mushrooms, tomato, and baked beans. I don't entirely understand the bean bit. And we mark the meal off our list as I struggle to pack six days of food to carry until we meet our first resupply nearly 70 miles ahead. We stop at the post box on the way back into town, then to a store where we arrange to park for the three weeks we're gone. Ted is a worrier and checked three times that it was okay to park here. But on the fourth, just as we're leaving, the manager comes to tell us no. I speak to the manager as steam starts to come out of Ted's ears, explaining we had been told yes and will be late for our privately arranged ferry ride. Oh, and I did come all the way from America. He finally relents realizing the miscommunication will really mess things up for us, then warns us someone needed to be hellied out of a river she tried to cross, but found herself stuck in. Don't be in a hurry and plan to wait out the spate, he warns us, as we walk quickly towards the dock, getting stuck briefly behind a fence near the McDonald's. Pat meets us with his tiny boat. I thought he was a fisherman, but Ted spies benches underneath. He had to hire Pat especially for us, since Sunday must be a day of rest for the tour across Loch Linney, where the track begins. There's barely any chop as we chug out into the long, thin loch. Scots call the long arms of the sea lakes, but in fact, they're fjords, faults in the land caused by the colliding of continents 430 million years ago, and finally a hollowing out by glaciers. Linney is the longest, with the ancient volcano Ben Nevis towering above. Sun glows through mist and momentary openings in the clouds, 
adding silver to the gray day. Across is Kamuznagal, which means Bay of the Dark-Haired People. The first part of the route to the northernmost point in the UK heads straight south on road along the lock, one rushing stream and waterfall after another tumbling down on our right and finding its way out to our left amidst thick, ancient and gnarled oak trees, their leaves turning yellow. Moss is everywhere, reminding us it may be dry now, but not for long, and gorse, a prickly bush the Scots took to New Zealand, nearly destroying its flora as the invasive spread. It's so easy we can talk most of the way, turning west at a pile of painted rocks and heading into Kona Glen. It's still easy to walk track next to a rushing river of rapids and falls. A few rickety bridges can take one to the other side, but we have little reason to go. Oak give way to ancient Caledonian pine with smooth trunks and an almost bonsai look. We stop for lunch on a log, then filter water at a side stream and down a liter of electrolytes. It's humid and warm. Ted's in short sleeves and I'm sweating, enjoying the wind at my back. We're close to the river, then pull above it only to return, the glen surrounded by tall, rocky hills. Our start is perfect. We meet two walkers who tell us they walked to Cape Wrath last year and suggest we unhook our packs when we cross the rivers, just in case we fall in and want to avoid getting held underwater by the weighty obstruction. Ferns make up the bulk of the vegetation, and shaggy cows with sharp horns graze near the track, hair in their eyes like so many surfer dudes. It's not far until we turn north and head up towards Miao Nakurate, a Monroe above a thousand meters. We begin to look for a site that checks all the boxes, flat, near water, and out of the wind, the wind really picking up in speed, nearly knocking us down as it gusts. Back and forth we go from one flat spot to trying to make a flat spot by the Bothy, just as an ugly black cloud flies fast straight for us, hiding the distant hills in a white mist. We dive into the muddy shed with our bags. Someone's dragged logs in here for seats directly next to spooled-up barbed wire that we need to carefully walk around. I eventually put on all my rain gear and take one more trip to the crashing burn to collect water. Ted sets up the cook stove for dinner, and we feel incredibly lucky to actually be sitting up for a meal rather than crouching in a tent getting flattened by the rain. And the rain just continues, Ted telling me of the expression, settling in, as in, the rain came and settled in for the night. I try to stay positive as we carefully lay our wet bags and our individual vestibules in the tent, then venture in and remove wet clothes. The tent is indeed a palace, with loads of room for the rain gear, and we're all set inside within minutes. Water drips loudly on the nylon and competes with the crashing falls. It's pitch dark by 7.30, but I'm warm and full, and hoping the rain moves on by morning. Well, no matter what happens, a bothy, complete with power and a teapot, is only 14 miles ahead. You're listening to the Blissful Hiker Podcast. 
In a series of personal essays coupled with found sound and my own flute playing, this podcast explores my journey of self-discovery as a middle-aged woman, sharing the sometimes unglamorous but vital truth about empowerment as badass people who don't need permission to blaze our own trails in this journey we call life. The rain hammered down the tent all night, loud and insistent. Is it the bent pole sticking the fly to the inner? Or maybe it's a tiny bit of a roll-off in the terrain. I sleep just fine. I'm warm and dry. But eventually a drip splats on my face. The rain pauses. Then, like a faucet being turned on, it starts right back up again. There's nothing worse than packing up in the rain. Funny, I haven't done it often, if ever. Thankfully, it's not cold. And once I pop out, the rain's not too bad either. Steady, but I can still see the mountains. Of course, the tent weighs more soaked through, but we get moving quickly up the track on easy grade. Ted mentions how we were warned the trail is unforgiving from the start, but only in turning around do we realize we're ascending. Pines with branches like tie dancers reach out over rapids carving through jagged rock. The heather is magenta, the brightest bit in this somber place. We stop at one of hundreds of burns or streams rushing into the Kona River. Ted finds a flat bit where I lay on my stomach to capture the water to filter, and we make coffee and cereal before the rain starts again. The route over the beelock or pass is steep, with water flowing directly into the path. But just as we turn up, the sun comes out, and blue areas open in the mist. The river is silvery in a mass of brown grasses and fern. My breathing is good, and I power up just fine, taking off my waterproofs with hopes of a clear afternoon. The wind picks up as I crest, and I see a black-gray mass heading towards us. Back goes on the jacket as the rain spits out again. I was wise to bring a baseball cap, which keeps rain off my face and is far better than just the hood. But this is not rain pounding on me. It's hail. Though it's not cold, and the damp is surprisingly not unpleasant. I walk along a kind of plateau where water gathers into gullies under the grass, sounding like jet engines. Glen Finnan below is arched by a rainbow, each color brilliant. It's wet going down and rocky. I need to watch my step and choose well to avoid the dampest bits. It's a gradual descent as rain comes and goes, the sun lighting up portions of mountainside. I find the rockiness interesting, like granite was plastered onto green hills and strips, almost soft in layers. More rainbows appear, maybe a dozen in all, and a train with a steam engine chugs over an old railway viaduct with arched pillars. It's steeper now, with large steps into peaty puddles. A massive stair-step of falls tumble through bonsai-like pines. We pass through a gate with a sort of swinging door for walkers, and then it's easy walking on a jeep track to a village. One person walks past and only grunts. The hiker we met yesterday told us of a closed section, which we meet, climbing past the gate to a view of Loch Shiel, then back down to the river. 
It's here where the bridge is closed, with a hard-to-climb-around gate, which, of course, we climb around, to cross a bridge and head to the monument, a massive tower topped by a Jacobite leader. I snap a few pictures, and we skip the cafe and the tourists to walk up the glen on a paved road, under the lovely viaduct where a local in a kilt and wool socks rides past on his bike. The sky clears and the wind picks up as we ascend the valley, the sun sparkling on moist granite outcroppings. It's easy walking, fast and direct towards the estate and its bothy, an old stone building set aside for people like us rambling the hills. We meet a quartet of wet hikers coming down who tell us four others are set up inside, drying out their kit. When we arrive, they invite us in, making room for our gear near the fire and offering us tea. Truly one of the best welcomes I've ever had backpacking. This bothy is electrified, so we make good use of the tea kettle, beginning with their tea and graduating to a pasta meal and hot peanut butter chocolate. There's a long table, chairs, and a pew, which I use to dry the tent as every bit of clothesline is taken, plus long wooden platforms to sleep on. We carry on about all sorts of subjects, and they give us good information about descending tomorrow and staying right of the river to avoid a nasty ford. No matter, the day will be damp, with changeable conditions and plenty of rough track. I'm told the proper description of a Scottish Highlands hiker is bog-trotter, with the added verbiage of their search for the driest patch to walk, bimbling. As we enjoy the fire and food and feeling safe and dry as the rain turns on and off through the evening, a fat and well-fed mouse emerges, scurrying between our bags. Everyone quickly finds a nail to hang their food before settling down and turning out the light. The Finnan River sings us softly to sleep. You can subscribe to Blissful Hiker wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple to help the show get discovered. Blissful Hiker is on Patreon right now. Find the link in the show notes or at blissfulhiker.com. Next week, the trail gets tougher but even more spectacularly beautiful in Scotland's only wilderness, Noidart. Until then, my friends, kia kaha and happy trails. <laughs> <laughs>